Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. And Linkshus, the place where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Michael. Hey, how's it going? I'm well. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Okay, we are talking to Michael Dempsey, currently with the research and data analytics team in CB Insights. By the way, just before that, you're based in New York, right? Correct. Yeah, we're based in Manhattan. Yeah. So it's early morning in New York. So maybe a quick first question: How did you get started in the industry? Sure. I started at a hedge fund called Crane Partners, an analyst there for two and a half years, um, doing. Investments across a bunch of different asset classes, ranging from private equity in South Korea and the U.S. to some derivatives, and then also to、uh, seed stage, early stage startup investments in the United States. Maybe to help our audience a little bit, tell me a little bit about CB Insights. What does it do? I've been following CB Insights. I can tell you, it's a great treasure trove of information. You guys give great analytics and data about <laughs> the venture capital industry. And maybe tell me who are the founders and where are you guys now? So CB Insights is we call ourselves a venture capital database. In reality, we track all private company financings, exits, and try to、uh, quantitatively assess private companies using a variety of metrics. The two it was founded by Anand Sanwal and Jonathan Sherry, and both of them previously helped run American Express's fifty million dollar Chairman's Innovation Fund. I think their kind of impetus to start the company was in that position. They were kind of disappointed by the lack of transparency and data around private companies. And so, you know, like great entrepreneurs do, they decided to、uh, build a better solution. And so they set up CB Insights, and basically they collect a lot of data. Do you actually collect data from just public sources, or do you also go by? Talking to people within the industry itself. We don't do the army of analysts model. We quantitatively and algorithmically collect data across over 160,000 sources every day. But we do have some proprietary data deals with some venture capital providers, I guess, agencies, and then also a lot of venture capital funds will give us their data because it's in their best interest to have their data up to date. Mm. So with with those data, basically, what you do is that you try to calculate the efficiency of venture capital. What kind of insights do you usually draw on? Do you typically just look at like exits, valuations in different regions, or etc.? Yeah, I mean, we look at financing trends,、um, exits, valuations. Absolutely, who the top investors are, what investors like to invest with other people. So we look at syndicates a lot. We、we'll、also look at more performance-based metrics. So. Web metrics, understanding what their web traffic is like over time, understanding who is talking about them on social media, how often they're being talked about. So we track Twitter mentions and Facebook mentions. We look at news classification as well. So how often are they being talked about in the news? What are they being talked about? Are they partnering with a lot of companies? Things like that. And then also we track job listings. So we can see, you know, it's a, a job listing increase is a good proxy for a healthy company because. If they are growing a lot, they should be hiring a lot. We take a ton of different data points and can drive, you know, a lot of different insights around both industries, companies, and investors.、Mm. How did you end up joining CB Insights, and what is your current role there? I'm、um, being from the investing side of things. I definitely saw the need in the marketplace, and I knew that I wanted to join a. Company that was small in terms of headcount, but was growing while still staying pretty industry facing. So CB Insights was kind of perfect there. You know, I do research and data analysis around 
all the private company financings, exits, and things like that. So I write for our research blog, I help our clients, and I'm generally just keeping my eye on the broader market uh, globally. Which is the reason why I got you onto the show, because I've seen a couple of articles from you talking about venture capital financing in Asia. I mean, presumably you actually collect the data from different sources, as you have mentioned earlier. Just looking at the venture capital financing, but let me specifically go into the Asia e-commerce industry, which actually exploded in 2014. So there was something about US 11.5 billion raised across 367 equity financing last year. So what is, are the trends that you see leading up to 2000, in 2015 for Asia alone? Obviously, that explosion, a lot of it was driven by e-hailing apps and the you know the Uber competitors. So we're seeing a lot of that still. Whitey Dache raised $600 million in the end of March of this year. So we're, we're still seeing that. Ola Cabs, the same kind of thing. We're also seeing more trends around you know other on-demand services, uh, whether that's you know, food delivery or you know manicures things like that just the the overall demand space is growing a lot on the asia e-commerce side and then we're also seeing a few things around social commerce and social media so that's that's something that we're definitely keeping an eye on and looking at some of these vertical specific social network things like that i think one of the examples that uh, i had just noted was a company called i believe it's pronounced llama bang they raised a hundred million dollar series c in march they're you know a social network that's very specifically targeted at mothers and so yeah that's that's definitely one of the trends we're looking at and we're expecting to see you know similarly large numbers in 2015 as we did in 2014. You see that there's not going to be a loss of momentum given that so much money had been poured into the last year so you're going to see continuously do you think there's going to be more or less or most likely the same? I think it'll be at least the same could be more I think thus far in uh, 2015, you know, we've we've seen over five billion dollars put in already into e-commerce and mobile commerce in Asia. So I think there's plenty of room and plenty of money that wants to get in still. That I definitely do not see a downturn in 2015. So given that the amount of funding that has exploded across Asia, do you see that Rocket Internet start being able to start up with a lot of these clones of different companies in different geographies actually? increase the amount of equity financing across the region? I think with Rocket Internet, they're kind of an interesting threat that they pose because they're so great at raising money in such a fast way that if they see something that works, they're going to really blow that out. And they're also very good at scaling a business quickly. So I definitely think for some investors, they do worry about that. And I think that might be part of the reason why we've seen some very large e-commerce rounds happen this year. They're fairly early on. So that, that could just be a matter of the investors worrying that they need to they need to put a lot of money into a company to beat a company like Rocket Internet that can raise so much. So yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a factor. But again, I'm hesitant to say that they're the ones driving a lot of these big rounds because I think just the macroeconomic opportunities are what is driving a lot of people to kind of come into some of these more hot markets. Mm. Specifically, what kind of macroeconomics? Is it also because of the amount of mobile penetration is also increasing in these geographies now? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is driven by that. So if you look at China, you know, as kind of the first leader, most internet users in the world, still seeing decent growth, but still below 50% internet penetration. If you move to India, which is, I think, the third most internet users in the world, their internet penetration is below 25%, and they are growing at, I think, 14% year over year. And, you know, they're, that's an interesting market because you have great technology, you have a lot of good engineers being that are that are starting there 
But then you also have one of the youngest populations in the world by 2020. Paired that with, you know, rising middle class, highly dense cities. I think that investors kind of salivated that opportunity. On the flip side, you know, you have countries like Vietnam, which we've spent a little bit of time looking at. And, you know, for Vietnam, internet penetration is still below 50%, but it's, it's high. They're still growing a lot. But I think that you have to start looking at kind of the growth in consumer change of spending behavior. So e-commerce sales are expected to almost double year over year from 2014 to 2015 there. And that's really, a, I think, partially a testament to consumers becoming more comfortable with buying online. So in Vietnam, you know, the consumers aren't as used to buying without touching and seeing. And that's something that's been kind of talked about. Versus India, consumers have been comfortable with that for years just because of infrastructure issues that make it very difficult and they kind of gave rise to grocery delivery and things like that that were already happening over the phone. So I think that that's definitely some another kind of interesting data point in that, uh, in that scheme of things. Specifically on the amount of investments in Asia, I mean, if you look at by country, China and India, I mean, they have the most amount of equity financings because of their large markets with economies of scale. I mean, whether their internet penetration is really that high remains a question. While you also observe things like Singapore, South Korea and Japan, where they are more developed, but they have significantly smaller populations. Will the amount of investments from your point of view cascade down to other kind of markets like a very large market like Indonesia or will it go towards potentially developing markets in Asia such as Vietnam which you just mentioned probably Myanmar Philippines and Thailand yeah I mean we've definitely uh, ha- we haven't spent as much time covering some of the more developing markets but I think in general we will see kind of a cascade in those other markets you know you have companies I believe like Tokopedia's serving Indonesia. They've raised over, or they've raised around $100 million from Sequoia and SoftBank. And then you have other com- companies that are kind of emerging to serve these markets on the e-commerce side of things. So I don't think that the funding levels will, at least in the very near future, get to anywhere close to China and India. But I think that there definitely is an opportunity for those dollars to kind of cascade, as you said. Do you think that you also be cascading also to the same industry as you have observed in both e-commerce and on-demand mobile apps such as Uber type kind of companies? Yeah, I think that that will be the first major frontier. So in Thailand, for example, Lala Move, they raised $10 million Series A uh, this January. They do kind of that on-demand delivery, almost uh, like ship in the United States. We also have some e-commerce enablement companies like e-commerce. They're serving Southeast Asia and they've raised I think $18.8 million to date. E-commerce and on-demand are trends that are kind of happening globally. And I think that those, those make sense as kind of the next the next frontier in those markets mm-hmm. as well. Do you find it uh, very difficult to look at Asia venture capital? Because in most of the cases where the funding is announced, but the valuation is not announced. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually think that at least on in China, we've seen valuation numbers coming out more and more recently. But in general, with you know, the way venture capital works, you can kind of peg a valuation based on a certain ownership percentage assumption. So I don't think it's that difficult to analyze if you don't have the valuation data because large financing rounds are strong enough trend on its own. So you actually saw work backwards and try to figure out what could be the valuation of that particular company going to be? We can think about it, but we're not ever going to guess and you know put out figures about it. So what about other areas beyond e-commerce, beyond on-demand mobile apps, for example? Do you see a lot of increase in other verticals such as hardware? Hardware, haven't seen as much of an increase in. Most of the things that we're seeing really is is focused on that on-demand area. So 
you know, like food and grocery is probably one of the more interesting spaces that we've just kind of started looking at more and more in both India and China. Do you think that Uber is going to be in danger because there's Grab Taxi in Southeast Asia and also there's a merger of Didi Dacha and Kwaidi Dacha into one company, which is kind of having Tencent and Alibaba both ganging up on Baidu? I definitely think it, it makes it difficult for Uber. There's been those numbers thrown out that the Kwaidi Didi entity controls about 99% of the overall demand for those for the taxi app. I think it'll be difficult for them. Having said that, I don't think that they're going to shy away from trying to compete or strike deals with other competitors that are already in those spaces. I believe we had saw some rumors about that a few months ago, and I don't we didn't have anything confirmed to my knowledge. Definitely something that they're going to have to deal with because it's such a big market for them if they want to grow into this global logistics type company, it'll be important for them. With venture capital, they are definitely top firms. So which are the top firms currently dominating the deals in Asia? And what are um, the essential differences that actually set them apart? So you have the, the kind of traditional people who have been there for some time in the Sequoia, different Sequoia capital branches in India and China, and then IDG as well. And, you know, their, their investing strategy has become a little more wide ranging across the deals that they do, because in the US, we have a lot more focus on stage VCs, but I think the, these firms are very entrenched in the market and they probably have such great deal flow that they look at everything across from early to mid-stage and then they've also done some large nine-figure late-stage rounds. Alternatively, you have you know Tiger Global who's kind of come in and really focused heavily on India and they originally came in and started doing later-stage deals, so they are a big investor in Flipkart, but they've been incredibly active at the early stage lately, investing in over 20 deals thus far in 2015. And they're investing across a bunch of different industries from Athler Energy, which is an electric, you know, two-wheel scooter company, to uh, Vedantu, which is an ed tech company, to Grofers, which is kind of the Postmates for India company. So they're, everything we've heard about them, you know, they put out very fast term sheets, and then they are really able to fill out entire rounds because they move quickly. And I think the way that that fund is set up, it's such a large fund that they can write these kind of options on these companies with a $5 million Series A investment. And then if it starts really working, they can really follow, it on and follow on and build on that position to gain a more meaningful equity stake. And they also just are, you know, I think they don't have any problem raising additional funds. So on India, Tiger is definitely unique. And then they've kind of more on, in China have done later stage deals thus far. You know, they were in Quaidi Dace's Series D and UX and Pi's uh, Series C. And then if we're looking at some of the more emerging markets, you know, East Ventures is one of the most active early stage funds, and they're very active in Indonesia and Thailand and Singapore. And then you also, you know, you can't not mention 500 startups because they're investing all over the place. And they've definitely picked up their investing activity in Asia, Asian tech companies in the, in the past year or so. How about SoftBank then? Um, you know, SoftBank is definitely interesting with the way that they're doing a lot of these corporate minority rounds. And I think they kind of are an in-between of what a traditional corporate VC might be and then what Tiger Global would be. So they definitely have a lot of clout and they are making noise, but they just aren't as active in terms of number of deals as these other funds. Because I was reading an article uh, from John Russell, who's also a guest on the show, and he was identifying all the taxi apps, and he kind of point to most of them having linkages to SoftBank in one way yep. or another. So I don't know. They are more. Do you see them more like a corporate VC rather than a traditional VC? In in yeah. your perspective. 
Yeah, I mean, they, they definitely have that. There were those rumors about them kind of creating that coalition global taxi app company that they all they had invested in all. They're definitely more strategic, I think, than just an investor that, you know, that's why you see a lot of these later stage corporate minority deals, but they're not just venture investments. And so, yeah, I think I just think of them as a little more strategic than a traditional VC. I see because they also did uh, Tokopedia, the $100 million round. And also they mm -hmm. also did, um, I think, Flipkart and housing.com, which they recently booted out the founder or I mean, it depend on whose version of the story you believe in. So <laughs> It's kind of, they are everywhere as well. But I think maybe from what you're saying is that their footprint is not large enough. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think people definitely, everyone knows them. I'm just speaking more on a pure mm. activity, you know, the, the amount of companies and things like that. It's, they're just not at the, quite at the same pace as the mm. others. So do you foresee more private equity firms, investment banks, hedge funds, or institutional investors coming into the Asia market? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think the, the best example of that might be uh, KOTU, which is another ex-Tiger you know, Cub hedge fund. And, you know, they they haven't been that active in Asia's tech scene previously, but they did both of those deals that Tiger was in, the Kwaiti Dache and the Yuxin Pai deal, as well as another one. And so I think you could see increased activity from them as they kind of build out their venture investment strategy. And yeah, in general, I mean, I think as these as a lot of these companies that are taking off are you know continue to raise more and more capital and stay private longer it's the same trend you're seeing in the united states i think that you're gonna see a lot of these pre-ipo type investors want to come in and take equity stakes in companies and really fill out some of these larger rounds that some venture investors just might not be as comfortable in doing or the their fund structure just might not support mm, i've been even seeing like investment banks like goldman sachs coming in into a Singapore fintech company, but not really. It's based in Singapore, but it's actually global uh, mm. a fintech company with 55 million. Do you see them actually going even downstream to a Series A, Series B, or Series C round? I think for coming like Goldman Sachs, I could definitely see Series C. To be at the early stage, I think it would have to be strategic. And I know that, you know, I think the way Goldman operates is they have a lot of different groups that are investing in startups and they kind of are independent from each other I, it's hard to say exactly what they view as strategic you know it's definitely possible mm. so like for example in the indian vc financing so i think we are going to see the we, we actually I, I saw your analysis that the u.s based investor market share is actually getting lesser and lesser and mm. there's also the talent flow from u.s back to india is getting larger so uh, with firms from other parts of the world getting into india so why is that happening is it because of the investment climate or is it that the scene is really growing from your viewpoint? I, I think it's the scenes growing because, you know, we have an analysis coming out that I just did. There's actually more US VCs that made an investment into just a more broader Asian tech companies in 2014 than in any of the previous five years. There were over 120 of them. And I think in 2015, we're we, it's very possible we passed that number. The scene is just getting bigger and thus the percentage is coming down. But the amount of U.S. VCs that want to get in and U.S. investors in general, I think, is growing. And, you know, you have some of these VCs that are doing pretty large deals. For them, you know, that might be a, an interesting entry point because you, you have a little more fundamentals, you have a little more to go off of, and you have to, you have to worry less about navigating some of cultural and, you know, some of the, the unknowns and more qualitative aspects of things. And then as they become more familiar with the market, you could see them going to 
you know, more traditional early stage investments. Yeah. And I think, and I think in general, you know, India, we've kind of talked about, there's just so much opportunity there. All the macroeconomic factors make it really appealing to international investors. I know on the e-commerce side of things, Amazon tried to come in and do something around grocery delivery, but they struggled a little bit due to just the infrastructure issues. And they're not used to servicing markets in that, in that on-demand way. Uh, that don't have as great infrastructure as the United States in terms of city to city and building out those hub and spoke models. So I think that 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 might give some pause to some outside companies. The huge opportunity is just so enticing. I mean, there's also a very interesting thing that happened in India recently, where one of the India, the CEO of an Indian conglomerate actually invested in Xiaomi, for example. Mm -hmm. So are you going to see a lot more emerging market investments activity? Let's say, for example, uh, India guy investing in a Chinese company coming to India and a Chinese guy investing in an India company going into maybe other markets? It's definitely possible. I don't know. I think it's, it kind of plays into the like globalization trend, which is obviously a kind of overblown talked about thing, but it could make sense as you build out these larger e-commerce markets. And if you as an investor there start to notice that consumers across multiple countries are sharing similar behavior patterns, it would make sense to start making those investments. You know, you could even theoretically start seeing M&A around from international buyers coming into these markets as well. So they actually buy up those companies that are actually similar to them, but dominant in a particular geography. It's almost the rocket internet model just at a bigger scale. You know, that's what rocket internet has been doing with their uh, global online takeaway group, just kind of buying up any food delivery or food, you know, ordering service in emerging market that they want to get into and then rolling it into this large entity. Mm. But I guess the question is that, you know, like the discussion that's ongoing in the US, whether, you know, companies are becoming more and beginning to be more overvalued. Are you seeing the same trend in Asia as well? I think, again, there's definitely a lot of people who want to get in. And so that will drive up valuations. There's just been a lot more funds that are being raised. And I worry that more funds could equal more competition, obviously. And then you'll see people driving up later stage valuations. But it's hard to say without knowing a lot of the fundamentals on how some of the, especially on the e-commerce side, you know, what their revenue is, because we, the only real data points we've gotten is their, you know, gross merchandise value. And a lot of the story being sold now is just massive growth, massive opportunity. But I think a lot of investors might underestimate understanding the market and the scaling of these, these companies that like really haven't been around for that long and really they ha- there, there isn't a playbook or a, a large number of companies that they can look to. Um, in China, there definitely is more, but you could see companies beginning to be overvalued. I know Jinping, they had hired banks to look at an IPO, but they ended up holding off because private investors were offering better valuations. But having said that, you know they're valued more at a higher valuation than Yelp, which is kind of their U.S. competitor, but they also have more active users than Yelp. So it's, it's definitely interesting. One reason for this increase in venture capital comes because of rocket internet. Um, Except maybe excluding China, I guess, because China has sort of built up its own internet scene with very, very strong foundations. Like Alibaba, yeah. Baidu, and Tencent, they call the BAT. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't... In India, again, I also don't know how much rocket internet impacts that scene. But in, in the emerging markets, I think they definitely pose a threat in some areas like, you know, the, the fashion e-commerce spaces and the food ordering and food delivery, just because as we brought, talked about earlier, you know, they're so great at raising a lot of money quickly and really scaling out a business or rolling an existing entity into this kind of big machine that they have. And then that becomes a lot harder to compete against as, as an early stage company that's trying to grow. 
I actually always have this fear about Rocket Internet because I was looking at their S1 filings for their IPO in Germany and it looks as that most of the, on average, most of the EBITDA uh, earnings before tax is mm-hmm. actually somewhere between minus 20 to minus 50%. Well, I mean, in, in, in simple words, what I'm saying is that for every dollar I invest in, the customer is actually making 20, 20 cents to 50 cents more than me for a dollar. Yeah. It worries me that it could lead to some form of catalyst towards, I wouldn't say a bubble burst, but you know, that's the fear that everyone is looking into those markets. Uh, am I just being overly pessimistic or maybe the story is much more than that? No, I mean, I don't think you're being overly pessimistic at all. So that's kind of relates to what I was touching on before. You know, the story here for a lot of these markets is growth. And it's just, we have growth in users, we have growth in baseline, top line numbers, but the profitability aspect is still not figured out in a lot of these companies. And so there definitely is a scenario where a few of these companies that have raised $100 million or more just can't figure out how to build a sustainable, scalable business. And Rocket Internets, with their the way they roll up these entities, might be, there's a possibility, yeah, that they're building this kind of house of cards of growth, but not an ability to scale these businesses across all the markets that they're trying to attack. Mm. And also, I think I'm actually seeing a lot of local companies are now fighting them back. I, I give you a very interesting situation in Indonesia. The Lipo Group, which is a conglomerate, has launched Matahari Mall which something like they put in 500 million to tackle against Rocket Internet's Lazada. So suddenly they're hiring <laughs> off everyone. They even hire off the e-commerce CEO for Indonesia. They hire off some of the best entrepreneurs who are founders in Singapore to join them. You know, that kind of local pushback that you actually would see this competition actually moved up even more. That there is this pessimism that actually is growing with Rocket Internet's so-called growth. But I mean, coming back to this, with so many unicorns now, the probability of exit via M&A will be far lesser. Do you see more companies going IPO or as similar to what happened in the 1999.com era or the risks are actually mitigated by private exchanges such as second market where companies can be kept private for a while with liquidity for founders and employees from investors wanting to buy in? I think you're going to see more IPOs, but I still also believe there's a lot of M&A that can happen. I mean... If we're looking at some of these, the unicorn data, you know, like India has, they've gotten four new unicorns in the last 12 months. We track all of these unicorns globally. They have seven total right now. Five companies from China have become unicorns in 2015, and there's over 12 right now. And so it's, yeah, it's definitely, definitely hot and definitely heating up. But I don't, I don't know if, I think, you know, a lot of the, at least in China, a lot of the big players that you talked about, you know, Tencent or, you know, Baidu or Alibaba, things like that, they still have a lot of a fair amount of cash on hand so they could acquire some of those companies if they see it as a strategic way so M&A definitely still could happen if we you know as we talked about kind of before with these companies crossing borders and investing in other entities I don't know a lot of the government restrictions on some of the foreign investments and foreign majority stake ownership so I can't speak to that but theoretically you, you could see some of these larger conglomerates entering other markets in Asia and acquiring some of the, you know, quote unquote unicorns. In terms of second market, I don't know if second market is really driving a lot of the liquidity for founders or employees. I think that a lot of that is actually happening outside of the public eye from other institutional players. Naval Ravikant of AngelList, I believe, wrote a post about this a few months back about how there's a lot of secondary market transactions happening that 
aren't really being talked about. Even if you look at some of these bigger companies, you know, Flipkart, they're a definite IPO candidate, but their founder or CEO has said, you know, their IPO could happen in the next two years. Well, Meituan, you know, they're considering an IPO, but they also are waiting till at least 2017. So in the near future, I don't know if we'll see a ton of IPOs, but it'll be interesting to see kind of how the market develops. And especially in China, where public markets are on such a run, how if, if anything were to, to have a downturn based on and bring down valuations in public markets, how that might put a pause on a lot of this, you know, potential tech IPOs. Mm. And then would you see the venture capital industry becoming more localized? Because I, I think, as you have mentioned so far, of all the only Tiger Global Sequoia and probably a little bit of SoftBank being very, very vocal in the market. Would you see, I think Excel has some presence in China, but I, haven't, I think also in India as well. Would you see brands of venture capital from Silicon Valley actually branching out? Yeah, I mean, I, I think right now would be that time when we're going to start seeing that, which kind of points to the, you know, US VCs are increasingly investing in in Asian tech companies data point that I threw out earlier. And I again, I think on the early stage side, it still is, there still is definitely a level of uh, expertise that needs to be had there. And that's why you see, you know, some of the more uh, entrenched players doing the early stage deals. I don't know if you're going to see an early stage micro VC in the US come over and start investing in, mm-hmm. in Asia. In that sense, yeah, I believe that can still stay localized. But mid and later stage companies want to get their feet wet in these markets and really start to learn about them and become global firms. I definitely think we could see that. Mm, I'm actually looking forward to seeing Andreessen Horowitz in Asia. So, yeah, it's, a, it's yeah, a matter of time. Yeah, I'm just waiting for that to happen. But I guess what keeps you excited? I mean, what are the most interesting things that you've seen in this first half of 2015. I think some of the interesting things we've seen, at least out of China, there's been multiple large deals in ed tech. And that's something that, you know, we hadn't seen as much of historically. But, you know, you have 17zy.com. Again, I apologize for butchering these enunciations. <laughs> no worries. Um, they, they raised $100 million at a $600 million valuation from uh, DST and some other investors. Juan Tiku raised $60 million at a $360 million valuation from IDG and Matrix. And, you know, they're all looking at ed tech in kind of different ways, but it's all mobile ed tech plays. You have kind of gamification around ed tech. You have the big, you know, massively open online courses. So that's definitely a trend that we're tracking and just more of these mid to late stage growth deals that are happening there. Alternatively, in India, you have something that, that I've kind of been tracking has been the uh, grocery delivery and that food delivery market. It's because there's a lot of interesting consumer behavior, uh, things that really lend itself to that, it kind of exploding in the next year or so in India. And it's kind of things we talked about, you know, the consumers don't really need to see or touch the things that they buy online. The infrastructure is pretty difficult as it is now. So there's a lot of opportunity for people to want to order things online, have it delivered to them. And the growing middle class definitely helps that. But across all of Asia, you know, I think generally what we're seeing is kind of what we're seeing in the U.S., this thought process around on-demand services more and more. So, you know, in the U.S., we've seen all sorts of insane on-demand concepts get funded. And we're starting to see that in Asia. You know, we're starting to see food delivery and groceries, which makes sense, and, you know, laundry delivery and last-mile shipping services. And now we're even starting to see, you know, like manicure and beauty on-demand getting funding in, you know, just the past two quarters. So that's definitely something to keep an eye on. And something that could be, you know, start to become a real global trend as opposed to more than just a taxi-focused and U.S.-focused trend. Mm. I mean, 
do you also foresee that anything that now start off from US will accelerate much faster? Into Asia? Yeah. Uh, we've seen a few things in the used car marketplace in, in Asia. And, you know, we just had uh, in the US, I think BP is rumored to be raising or, or has raised at a $2 billion valuation, $2 billion or more valuation. So having said that, like that market is very big in the US, but in terms of venture-backed companies, there haven't been as many large, high-valued companies. And then in China, we've seen a, a few already. So that's something that's kind of interesting. I mean, you're based in New York and you're in the heart of the financial capital in the US. What is the most exciting thing about the Asian market that US-based investors are looking out for? I think it's, you know, to, to continue to harp on it, I think it's just opportunity. The macroeconomic demographics just lend itself so well to... Mm. Tons of huge companies being built over the next five or ten years, and that's that's really interesting from the U.S. perspective, where you know the the growth story in terms of mobile is still there, but in terms of the the demographics and the the consumers in general, it's not at the same nearly the same level of potential growth. Mm. I mean, Asia is four billion population, so the scale is yeah. actually much bigger on on that. So I, I guess I will probably have to talk to you again in probably another time, probably half a year to a year's time. But exactly. maybe tell, tell my audience, how do they find you? I write at cbinsights.com slash blog is where we do our research briefs. And we have a great team there. does a lot of great stuff. My, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at mhdempsey. I blog you know, personally as well at michaeldempsey.me. So all of those things you should check out. Number one, CB Insights. There's a lot of great stuff there. We are putting out a Q2 Asia tech report in a month that will have a lot of other great data and then also a venture capital report that will focus on just some of the more broader uh, global trends as well. Let me know that and I will definitely share with the audience once it's out through all our channels in Analyze Asia. You can also find me at bernardleong.com or at bleongcw or subscribe to us on Twitter at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia or come to our website at analyzeasia.com. You can listen to us through iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud and of course, leave a review. One star to five star, we really welcome that. So once again, Michael, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Yeah, thank you very much. And I, I just want to add one more thing. Subscribe to our newsletter, cbinsights.com ah, slash newsletter. You'll get all of our research briefs. We send it new three new briefs three times a week. So you get nine really high quality, high value research reports. I definitely endorse that because I'm one of the readers of your yeah. insights as well. But thank you so much for coming on the show, Michael. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it.